Welcome to the October 2023 episode of Astrochem Coffee, brought to you by Astrochemistry Discussions. I'm your host, Brett McGuire. Today we've got our usual mix of quick hits and deeper dives into the astrochemical literature past and present, and I'll be joined by two special guests later on in the episode to discuss a new public database for astrochemical data, as well as what it's like visiting jazz bars in Japan. But first, let me tell you that today's cup of joe is an 8-ounce Lavazza Classico roast. It's got a deep, roasty aroma that I enjoy black, but today I've prepared it with a splash of light cream, because the weather has finally turned cold here in the northeastern United States, we're moving toward the holiday seasons, and I deserve a little treat now and again. Don't worry, I logged the extra calories in my nutrition app. This is the grab-and-go, because sometimes you can't do more than skim the menu. Number one, millimeter and submillimeter spectroscopy of isobutene and its detection in the molecular cloud G plus 0.693 by Fatima et al. on the archive to appear in A&A. This is a combined laboratory and quantum mechanical study of isobutene between 35 and 370 gigahertz. Using the new spectroscopic information, the molecule is detected in the G plus 0.693 minus 0.027 molecular cloud, the first detection of this molecule outside the solar system, and only the second branch-chain hydrocarbon species after the earlier detection of isopropyl cyanide by Beloshedal. Number two. Volatiles in the Water and CO2 Ices of Comet 67P by Rubin et al. on the archive to appear in Munras. This paper presents a study of water and CO2 over the course of the Rosetta mission to Comet 67P using the Rosina mass spectrometer. Both species were monitored alongside volatile species such as methane and CO. They conclude that the release of the highly volatile species coincides with the release of water and CO2, suggesting, as has also been shown in laboratory experiments, that highly volatile species are often trapped in water and CO2 ices. Explanations for observed deviations from this behavior are also explored. Number three, JWST. Deuterated PAHs, PAH nitriles, and PAH overtone and combination bands 1. Program description and first look by Boersma et al. on the archive to appear in AppJ. This paper presents a first look at JWST near-spec observations of seven objects in the low-mass stellar life cycle. Multi-component decompositions are performed on spectra extracted towards select regions within each target, examining the contributions of various groups of PAHs, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, to the emission. The paper serves largely as an overview of the program, with in-depth analyses forthcoming in future work. Number four, modeling deuterated isotopologues of methanol toward the prestellar core L1544. By Rydell et al. on the archive. This paper uses a gas grain chemical code to model methanol deuteration in the L1544 pre-stellar core. In particular, a new reactive desorption treatment is developed, as well as new approaches to hydrogen and deuterium atom diffusion. 
The resulting model well reproduces the methanol deuteration, and the manuscript discusses the implications on our understanding of methanol formation, formation pathways, especially as they relate to diffusion. Number five, collisional excitation of PO plus by para H2 by Tonolo et al. on the archive. Collisional coefficients are derived for the interaction of PO plus with para H2, motivated by the recent detection of this molecule in the G plus 0.693 minus 0.027 molecular cloud. The derived non-LTE column density is substantially different from the previously derived values, and the authors show that there is evidence for maser activity in many low-J rotational lines. Number six, row vibrational spectra of CC stretching modes of C3H+, and HC3O+, by Bast et al. in the Journal of Molecular Spectroscopy. The row vibrational spectra of C3H+, and HC3O+, were measured in the 5-micron region at high resolution for the first time, using a 22-pole cryogenic ion trap and the novel leak-out action spectroscopy method. Part of the goal of the experiment was to further characterize and optimize the leak-out methodology by studying the kinetics of this process. Number 7. Shaping the CO snow line in protoplanetary disks, by Gavino et al. on the archive. This paper examines the effects on the temperature structure of protoplanetary disks when multiple grain size populations are explicitly included in a chemical model. They use the radiative transfer program RADMC3D and the gas grain chemical model Nautilus to explore the effects of including two explicit grain populations for a disk, which results in a complex temperature structure. The results are then discussed in the context of the CO snow line, which shows notable alterations from when a single grain population is considered. Number eight, methods for averaging spectral line data by Anderson et al. on the archive to appear in PASP. This paper examines three different weighting schemes commonly used when averaging spectral line data, intensity noise weighting, noise weighting, and uniform weighting. The benefits and drawbacks of each are discussed, and then these methods are applied to data from the GBT Diffuse Ionized Gas Project, and the results are discussed in the context of the various methods. Number 9. The Evolution of Sulfur-Bearing Molecules in High-Mass Star-Forming Cores, by Fontani et al. on the archive to appear in ANA. This paper presents an analysis of observations of sulfur molecules obtained with the IREM 30-meter telescope toward 15 sources spanning the evolutionary spectrum from starless cores to protostars to ultra-compact H2 regions. They find that NS, CS, C2S, and HCS plus tend to trace cold, quiescent, and extended material, while OCS and SO2 trace warmer, more turbulent, and compact material, and SO and SO plus can trace both, depending on the source. SO, SO2, and H2S show the strongest correlations with kinetic temperature, suggesting they may be good evolutionary indicators. Finally, the authors claim to see an overall increase in gas phase sulfur abundance between less evolved and more evolved sources. Number 10. Shocking, Sagittarius B2N1 with its own outflow, a new perspective on segregation between O and N-bearing molecules by Bush et al. on the archive to appear in A and A. An analysis is presented of the molecular inventories and physical conditions in regions of a bipolar outflow around the source Sagittarius B2N1 as revealed by SIO and SO emission in ALMA 3mm spectral line observations. Based on the derived parameters, the authors posit 
that hot core chemistry was briefly active in these regions before shocks from the outflows destroyed much of the oxygen-rich complex organic inventory. Combined with competitive formation of cyanide molecules in the post-shot gas, they suggest this scenario leads to the observed oxygen and nitrogen-bearing segregation in the region. Number 11. Formation of interstellar complex organic molecules on water-rich ices triggered by atomic carbon freezing by Ferrero et al. on the archive. This paper presents a quantum chemical investigation of the reactivity of carbon triplet P with water ice, along with other common ice species, ammonia, CO, CO2, molecular hydrogen, OH, NH2, and CH3. A number of reactions are found to be spontaneous and to produce complex organic species such as methane diol, ethanol, and methanamine. A mechanism for the formation of methane was also proposed. Most importantly, the authors claim, the reaction of carbon triplet P with the water itself spontaneously produces COH2, locking free carbon up in this species and limiting its ability to participate in chemistry directly, as is currently assumed in most models. Number 12. Interstellar carbonaceous dust erosion induced by X-ray radiation of water ice in star-forming regions, by Chong et al. on the archive. This work used isotopically labeled oxygen and carbon species to study these erosion processes and subsequent reactions, attempting to understand the underlying chemical mechanisms. Interstellar ice analogs were deposited on amorphous carbon dust and exposed to soft X-rays, with the products monitored by Fourier transform infrared spectroscopy as a function of X-ray fluence. The results show the formation of CO2 at the ice-dust interface, and then the CO2 is dissociated to form CO. The yields are dependent on the carbon layer thickness. And that's your grab-and-go for the month. We can, of course, only juggle so many cups. For a more complete list of papers, we recommend checking out the amazing lists maintained by David Woon at theastrochemist.org and the Astrochemical Newsletter. You can find links to these websites as well as each of the papers in this month's grab-and-go on our website at coffee.astrochem.net. Have a paper you think we should include in next month's edition? Shoot us an email with a link to the paper and a four-to-six-sentence summary at coffee at astrochem.net. You never really know who you're going to run into when you're waiting in line for coffee and have an opportunity for a quick chat. Hey, well, joining me today, we've got Tanya Lamberts, who's a, an assistant professor at Leiden University in the Netherlands. Tanya, how's Hi, it going? Brad. So, it's going uh, very well. Fantastic. So this is a coffee chat. In front of me, I have a beautifully roasted cup of Dunkin' Donuts decaf, but it's the middle of the afternoon, my time. I don't know what time it is over there in the Netherlands, but it's significantly later at night. Do you have a cup of coffee in front of you or are you a tea drinker? What are we working with? Mm, actually, I'm a coffee drinker, um, but indeed, I've tr I'm trying to cut down on coffees later in the afternoon to sort of improve my quality of sleep. So I'm I'm not yet at the sleepy time vanilla flavored tea, <laughs> but somewhere in between. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. What, so I, I had a question before before we started uh, recording that I wanted to ask you, which is if you go to a coffee shop, do you get a flat white or a cafe latte if you're going to order one of those? Is there a stark divide between those? Hmm. This is a, a trick question. Yeah. I I think I think a flat white with oat milk. Yeah. Oh. And if they have cinnamon sugar, I'll definitely have it on top. 
going super, super fancy. Well, I mean, the, the reason I asked that is kind of what we were going to chat about today. So I was introduced to flat whites when I was in Australia, actually, to do observations back in graduate school, and I'd never heard of them before. And it's super common down there, right? Even more common than a latte. And it blew my mind. It's just a, a whole new way to have coffee that I didn't pick up until traveling. And as it turns out, you're about to travel to Japan, right? For an awesome master chemistry conference. What, what conference is that that you're going to? I'm going to go to the ISM meeting. Uh, that's uh, organized, I think, every other year uh, in Sapporo on the most northern island of Japan, Hokkaido. And uh, it's organized by the Institute for Low Temperature Studies, which is, you know, amazing for me. They have a really, really cool uh, ice sample storage space in the basement um, that sometimes is part of the lab tour of the conference. So I'm kind of curious if this year will be one of those years where it's part of the lab tour. <laughs> And uh, so I've been there before and actually in the, uh, like, as there are many convenience stores, you know, everywhere on every street corner of every city in Japan, um, there actually turn out to be also many little shops where you can buy coffee beans. Oh, no kidding. And yeah. Yeah. And I remember going there uh, last time, like in absolutely zero Japanese and mm -hmm. trying to, you know, make them understand, like, is this a strong, strong flavor of coffee bean or is it a mild flavor of coffee bean, which are not <laughs> really, you know, words that I have picked up anywhere. Um, so I ended up just buying random, random chunks of, you know, 250 grams of these beans and 500 grams <laughs> of those beans as a surprise for getting home. What, what what kind of surprise was it? Were they very different or did they all taste relatively the same when you brewed them up or, or do you not remember anymore? No, they, they had differences. They had differences, but not that I remember that this one specific one was the one I should go back for now. So. Sure. Fair enough. But speaking of differences, I, you know, it, uh, as I said, it's awesome getting to travel internationally and, and astrochemistry in particular is really good for this because there's astrochemistry conferences all over the world all the time. Um, but is there something in particular you like to do, a, a special type of place you like to try to explore the local variant of everywhere you go? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I, I know some people do that with McDonald's, right? They go for like the same the <laughs> uh -huh. same burger or like the typical menu in, in different McDonald's. Um, that's not that's not what I do. Um, but I do my own. I try to find my own, like, let's say, subcultures everywhere mm -hmm. I go and see what the differences are. And um, yeah, so one example would be um, the, the dance that I dance. So I usually try to find if it's there. Um, and if it's not, I'll go for something adjacent. Okay. What, what, um, what dance is that, by the way? It's, a, it's called Forró. It's from Brazil. Or it originates cool. in Brazil. But okay. it's a little more, you know, it's a little more niche. Although actually in Japan, there are large communities dancing that, but not in Sapporo. Ah. Uh, and uh and the other thing that I like doing is going to a, to a jazz bar. A jazz so, bar. Yeah, yeah. So I, I usually spend some effort in figuring out which evening is the live music or the, the jam session evening. Uh, and then I go. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so did you get to go to a jazz bar the last time you were in Japan? Yeah, I did. I did. It was very funny because I got, uh, of course, when I go, you know, I'm tall and um, white and blonde. So uh -huh. there is no hiding, basically. <laughs> and if I if I don't feel like talking to people, I should not go out of my room. Otherwise, uh -huh. people will eventually approach me. <laughs> um, and uh, what happened uh, there is that uh, the pianist, she started talking to me. 
and like she had studied in the US so her English was really good. We had a very nice conversation. And then I made a classic mistake, which was to say that, yeah, I've sung some jazz in the past. Yeah, I oh, did. No. it was very nice. Uh-huh. Yeah, I used to play during my PhD. There was another student and we played together. Um, and she said, and I had totally forgotten that Japanese culture is all about karaoke. And, you know, it's very, very common to sing in front of people. Uh-huh. She said, oh, yeah, but we're going to play. And then if you come, you'll sing a song. And I was like... No, I really don't need to sing. I, I, I really don't need to sing. Um, but then, yeah, of course, in the end, she she sort of, you know, I, I had to sing something. Uh-huh. And uh, and the only, you know, I chose the safest song. And mm-hmm. I thought, I think it was in C. Like, I think my key was C, but I wasn't sure anymore. <laughs> so I just said, yeah, in, um, yeah, it's only a paper moon in C. <laughs> all right praying it wouldn't be too too you know high-end but it was it was it was nice it worked out um but yeah that's a mistake i will never make again (laughs) but do you plan to go to a jazz bar again when you go over this time i hope i hope i'm I'm gonna manage yeah i think my my schedule now is a little more packed than uh when i was still postdoc um i have a little bit less time to freely choose my own activities but um, yeah, definitely, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and squeeze it in. Awesome. Well, that sounds like a, an absolute blast of a time. I, I really wish I was going, but uh, there's a bunch of bunch of awesome people going over to this conference, so I'm sure it'll be fantastic. I don't want to take up any more of your time. Thanks for for stopping by and having a chat. Um, and if anybody wants to 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 chat with you further, just uh, look you up on on Leiden University website. Is that the best way to find you? Uh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Email would be um, would be good or or Slack. Awesome, sounds great. All right, take care and safe travels. Thank you. Bye bye. And now a word from our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by Uncle Bob's Cookies. Ever wonder whether stone ground coffee beans can be used as a delicious and nutritious gluten free substitute for flour in your favorite cookie recipes? The answer is certainly no, but Bob doesn't take no for an answer. His new triple mocha chocolate chocolate chip cookies might be dense, bitter, and hard as rocks, but only until you sink them to the bottom of your mug of coffee for mm, three to five minutes. Check them out today and keep a special lookout for their limited-time holiday flavor offering with mixed peel and cardamom. I hate to say it, folks, but the espresso machine is out of service this month. Someone tried to cheap out on descaling solution and used vinegar instead. We're still trying to replace all the O-rings, and I, for one, haven't recovered my sense of smell yet. Needless to say, I don't have a double shot for you this month, but fear not, I know you'll love this single-origin brew we've got coming to you straight from Gothenburg, Sweden. Today's single-origin brew is... The Astrochemistry Low Energy Electron Cross-Section, ALEX, Database 1, Semi-Empirical Electron Impact Ionization Cross-Section Calculations and Ionization Rates, by Geishas et al., appearing on the archive. And to tell us about this today, actually, we have the first author of that paper, Brant Geishas, a Cosmic Origins Fellow at Chalmers in Gothenburg in Sweden. Brant, how's it going? Hi, uh, it's doing quite well here. A bit cold, but quite nice, actually. Awesome. That's fantastic. 
So you're an astrochemistry postdoc now, but can you remember when you first heard of astrochemistry and maybe tell us how you got started doing research in the field to begin with? Yeah, so I actually ended up in astrochemistry almost by coincidence or by chance. Uh, when I was in graduate school, I had to do a second year project as part of the program. Uh, and that program, as part of that project was uh, performing synthetic observations of a uh, cloud from a bunch of different molecules. And in order to do this, I had been given an astrochemical model that had already been run. Um, but I got really interested in how the turbulence of the cloud looked very different depending on which molecule you uh, we're looking at. Um, and this ended up getting me down this route of, well, in order to get the, the turbulence right, you know, you kind of have to get the chemistry right. And then that kind of went down the down da down the rabbit hole a bit as to, you know, trying to make sure the chemistry is modeled as, as best as possible in order to make sure that the physics you infer from line observations and, and, and elsewise is as accurate as possible. Oh, that's super cool. And, and the rest is history, as it seems. Uh, and that really leads us directly into to Alex. I, am I right in pronouncing this as Alex? Is that what you intended with the acronym? Yeah, that was it was a, an acronym by happenstance and luckily not by too much force. <laughs> awesome. So, so Alex contains computational results examining electron impact ionization cross sections and ionization rates that physics affecting the chemistry here that you were just talking about that you want to model appropriately. But before we chat about the database itself, could you tell us a bit about why these sorts of results, in particular, why these cross-sections and ionization rates are, are so important and the impact that they have on, on astrochemical research in general? Yeah, so electron chemistry is, is kind of all over the place, and it comes about in a few different areas, not just in astrochemistry, but you see people interested in electron chemistry in medicine and in plasma and fusion sciences. Um, and you know, electrons are, are very good at driving chemistry through ex, uh, excitations of molecules and ionizations. Um, and in particular, in astronomy, a lot of chemistry in the gas phase is initiated through ionization chemistry. And if you look at things like in protoplanetary disks, you have a lot of chemistry that's driven through x-rays. Uh, and one of the major effects that x-rays cause is not just the initial photoionization, but that photoionization kicks off an electron and that electron can then lead to another ionization and you get a whole cascade of effects. But in order to compute those processes accurately in chemistry, you need accurate cross-sections. Uh, and that's where this database really comes into play as basically expanding the availability of the data and the accessibility of the data really by you know, a significant amount. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, so presumably when, when you decided to put all, all this effort into making this database and, and, and to performing the actual scientific calculations themselves, there was a reason for it for your own research. So, so do you use these rates and cross sections in your own research and, and uh, you know, what, what sort of exciting avenues are you exploring with these results? Uh, so actually we I've only just started to possibly use these cross sections the the initial reason why we started to compute these, um, one of the co-authors, Marco Padovani, who I've worked on uh, worked with for a couple of other projects, um, both he and I were writing this chapter for a uh, an astrochemistry textbook on cosmic ray astrochemistry. And we ah. wanted to compile the available uh, astrochemistry rates that were in the two most popular uh, astrochemistry networks, KEDA and UMIST. And we were kind of disappointed that there was only a few uh, and there wasn't a paper citation given to them, but we were able to kind of hunt that down. And those few rates that were given dated back to the 70s. Um, oh, and so, wow. yeah, so we really started to, to think, you know, okay, of course, you know, 
atomic physics hasn't changed that much, but our ability to compute a lot of these things has improved drastically in the you know mm-hmm. since since the late seventies. Uh, and maybe you know we could enable new science by not just having you know five ionization rates in the database, but having two hundred, and then being able to now apply those in all sorts of different environments and to actually test. You know, you, you can't test if a process is important in different environments if the codes you're using to test it don't include those processes to begin with. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, so you mentioned a number here, more than 200, which is how many you've, you've put into the database here to start with. Uh, are there plans to expand that, that number to include uh, cross-sections and rates for more species, or, or are you even going to start including things other than perhaps cross-sections, these particular kinds of cross-section and rates in, in the database? Yeah, so right now there's a couple of uh, ways in which I have personally planned to expand it, the first of which is by expanding the number of molecules. Uh, and so in particular, once you get past uh, molecules with, say, six or so atoms, uh, you end up with a lot of uh, different uh, isomers. And generally, we only include one or two different uh, of those in the in the database. But, you know, uh, observations can be of, of many of those. So that's one area where we can start to expand upon it just by including more uh, different types of molecules. The, the 200 is the number uh, that doesn't include, you know, uh, uh, multiple isomers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, including different uh, processes. So right now we have the total ionization cross-sections. Uh, one of the next steps is to include differential cross-sections. So the cross-section has a function of the ejected electron. Uh, and then maybe excitation or other processes, although excitations uh, are generally a bit more complicated to, to, to calculate. So that's a bit more of the long term. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, in general right now, there's about 300 molecules that have been detected in ISM. Uh, it's growing more and more thanks to uh, people like yourself, actually. Uh, and so as this list grows, the hope is that we can keep, you know, uh, going along with the calculations as it grows and keep up with the detection rate. So there's just this always growing amount of data that that can be there for use. Awesome. So, so on the, you know, it, this is a large task, right? And it's, it's potentially infinite with the exploration space of, of, of available molecules here. Are, do you have plans to uh, solicit community contributions or, or if folks want to get involved and contribute this in some way? Uh, is that something you're thinking about for the future? Yeah, we have. We would absolutely love uh, more people to get involved. And in fact, if you look at the Alex team, um, it kind of grew organically. Uh, and for instance, we had about 150 or so molecules to start with. And then the uh, balance group uh, at Oxford joined the initiative and contributed data for about another 140 molecules. Um, there was some overlap uh, between the two. Um, and so there are a number of groups that have been doing these types of calculations. Uh, and generally, they either aren't in databases or they're you know, just a, a figure or a, a table in a, in a paper. Um, and so we would, you know, if people want to include their data in this database, we more than welcome those additions. And we uh, have some uh, rules that we put on our, our GitHub to try and make it so that if people contribute data and then people use the database, the papers where that data came from actually still get cited. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, and, and on that note, you know, I will, of course, have a link to the paper and to, to the GitHub database uh, uh, website for the database on, on our web page and in the show notes. Um, but if, if folks want to to learn more about the database or, or talk to somebody involved, should, should they just contact you? Is there a, a different person they should contact? Uh, how do they go about that? 
yeah, they could for sure contact me. Um, maybe there's someone in the collaboration in their institute, which, and, you know, maybe they can go knock on their door. Uh, but elsewise, you know, contact uh, me would be, you know, a, a good first first guess. If it's, you know, if you have a particular set of new uh, data you want to have, it's very easy to expand this. Um, and so, uh, yeah, if you have any questions or if you want to add or expand, we, we all welcome um, as much input and uh, comments and help as we can get. <laughs> Awesome. Well, well, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Really excited about this new resource for the community uh, and uh, hope to see you around conferences in the future here. Thanks, Brent. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. Are you still brewing coffee like a ground dweller? Elevate your mornings with Star Beans, roasted in Aunt Lucy's proprietary oven built from real space rocks, ensuring each cup has an out-of-this-world flavor that's literally meteoric. Say goodbye to the bitter earthling brew and hello to a nebula of richness. So strap in, sip up, and launch your day into hyperspace with Star Beans. It's a coffee that's truly astronomical. Available in retail stores nationwide. Alrighty, folks, time to take a look at the percolator and see what's bubbling back up to the surface this month. And, huh, this is weird. It's a bunch of black and white newspaper clippings? May 26th, 1937, the Decatur, Illinois, Daily Review. Heavens hold immortality. Virtual immortality is attributed by an eminent astrophysicist to single atoms and even molecules in the celestial space. In a paper published in London and received here today, Dr. M. N. Saha, head of the Department of Physics, University of Allahabad, India, says, Only such states of atoms and ions occur in interstellar space as have infinitely long life. Such practically immortal states are denied to the atoms on Earth, even in the laboratories where atoms are enclosed in exceedingly high vacuum tubes. Sodium, potassium, calcium, titanium are among the mineral atoms newly found in the vast space that lies between star and star, Dr. Saha Vers. When two or more atoms unite, they form a molecule. Dr. Saha raises the question, why should not molecules also occur in interstellar space? That in such an incredibly high vacuum as in the celestial space, even atomic combinations or molecules are present is of great interest in understanding the structure of the whole universe. October 6th, 1937. The Buffalo Evening News. Scientists puzzled. Newfound spectral lines have no known explanation. Scientists at Mount Wilson Observatory are seeking the solution of the mystery surrounding six yet unidentified spectral lines that can, in no way, be associated with any arrangement of atoms or molecules known on Earth. June 25th, 1940. The Norfolk, Virginia Ledger Dispatch. Interstellar carbon found. Astronomers discover element in space. Discovery of a new heavenly hydrocarbon by Mount Wilson and Canadian observers was described as important today by two Harvard astronomers who said that the findings showed the first combination of elements in interstellar space and also revealed the presence of previously undetected carbon in that area of the heavens. The discovery of this molecule in space, it may be termed a heavenly hydrocarbon, 
is important in its contribution to our knowledge of the makeup of the universe because hitherto only uncombined elements had been detected in the space between the stars. It is not exactly surprising, though, because for some time there have been unproven suggestions that some of the lines which have appeared on the spectra of certain stars might have been caused by such molecules in space. The report from Mount Wilson said the identification of the carbon-hydrogen molecule was a development of previous provisional identifications by Dr. McKellar of Canada's Dominion Astrophysical Observatory. November 29, 1941, the Cincinnati Post. Gas that exists everywhere in the universe, except on Earth, produced by scientists. A gas that apparently exists everywhere in the universe, except on Earth, has been synthesized or created artificially for the first time by two Canadian scientists. The gas is the simplest possible hydrocarbon consisting of the combination of one atom of carbon with one atom of hydrogen. Apparently, the scientists have not yet chosen a name for it. The story of the new discovery is told in the current issue of the Astrophysical Journal, published by the University of Chicago, and is a romantic story of how science progresses. For some time now, astronomers have been seeking to determine the composition of the so-called cosmic cloud, the extremely thin cloud of gaseous matter scattered through the space between the stars. At a recent conference on interstellar molecules held at the Yerkes Observatory at Williams Bay, Wisconsin, Dr. Polydor Swings, Associate Professor of Astronomy at the University of Chicago, called attention to three sharp lines in the spectra of extremely distant stars and expressed the belief that these lines were not due to the stars themselves, but to the effect of the interstellar cloud. His idea was that they were caused by some unknown gas which permeates the vast stretches of space between the stars. The two Canadian physicists, Dr. A. E. Douglas and Dr. Gerhard Hertzberg of the University of Saskatchewan were intrigued by this report and decided to try and create a gas which could give the same spectrum lines observed by Dr. Swings. They started to work immediately and succeeded in synthesizing the gas consisting of one atom of hydrogen and one atom of carbon, which gave the same spectrum lines which Dr. Swings had called attention to. The story at once calls to mind the classic tale of the discovery of the gas helium, whose existence was noted in the sun by the British astronomer Sir Norman Lockyer before the discovery was made that it was one of the constituents of our own atmosphere. Apparently, the combination of one atom of carbon and one atom of hydrogen would exist normally only in such conditions as obtained in interstellar space, where the distribution of matter is so slight as to constitute what we think of on Earth as a high vacuum. Wait a second. There's something stuck to the bottom here from that 1940 Norfolk Ledger dispatch. Why shift gears? Try Chrysler fluid driving. Just touch the throttle to go. Touch the brake to stop. You never knew that driving could be that simple and easy, but it is, with fluid drive. Makes driving fun again, because it eliminates the work of declutching and shifting gears. The smoothest, quietest drive ever put in a motor car. Simply can't jerk nor clash. One fan-like wheel drives another by forcing oil against it, so fluid drive is literally as smooth as oil. Whatever car you drive now, Fluid driving will give you thrills you've never known before. Whatever car you plan to buy, fluid drive will give you a new conception on the future trend of motoring. Come in and try it today. 
Be Modern by Chrysler. Huh, uh, that was weird. I really need to get this percolator checked out by somebody. Chalkboard is looking pretty crowded this month, folks. First up, we want to let you know that the Astrochemistry Subdivision of the American Chemical Society is restarting their Astrocheminar webinar series. Their next speaker will be Avine Van Dishuk from Leiden Observatory on November 8th, so just a few days from today. Speaking of Leiden Observatory, they are advertising openings for approximately 6 to 10 new PhD positions. Applications are accepted through November 15th. There is also an open PhD position in the Computational Astrochemistry Group, modeling molecular ice abundances at Leiden University, working with Tanya Lamberts, Serena Vitti, and Herma Kupen. Application deadline for that one is November 22nd. And finally, we want to let you know that the Star and Planet Formation Laboratory at Riken has an opening for a research scientist at the assistant or associate professor level, specifically targeting astrochemical research. And the application deadline for that is December 8th. In conference news, registration for the 2024 Laboratory Astrophysics Workshop in Kauai, Hawaii, from February 19th to the 24th, is still open, although late registration was slated to start November 1st. So if you snoozed, you lost. Also very recently announced, the Quantum Grain Workshop, Emerging Horizons in the Chemistry of the Universe, will convene in Barcelona June 9th to the 12th, 2024. Not much information yet, other than save the date for this exciting opportunity. As always, links to all these opportunities are available on the show page on our website, coffee.astrochem.net. And that's it for this month's Astrochem Coffee, a service of astrochemistry discussions. Once again, you can find links to all the papers and meetings and opportunities from today's episode on our website, coffee.astrochem.net. Have ideas for the grab-and-go or double-shot, general thoughts or comments? Get in touch with us at coffee at astrochem.net. Special thanks today to our guests, Brant Geishas and Tanya Lamberts, as well as ChatGPT, who assisted in the ad copy for Starbeans. Until next month, stay safe and keep your head in the molecular clouds.